today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, a new cyber strategy from the White House, managing all of your data for cyber success, and zero trust priorities at the DOJ. It's Thursday, March 2nd, 2023. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast, where you'll hear the latest news and trends facing government leaders. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Billy Mitchell. Here's what's happening now. The Biden administration is rolling out its long-awaited national cybersecurity strategy. The strategy features five pillars, defend critical infrastructure, disrupt and dismantle threat actors, shape market forces to drive security and resilience, invest in a resilient future, and forge international partnerships to pursue shared goals. Joining me now is CyberScoop Senior Editor Elias Grohl, who is covering the new Biden administration initiative at cyberscoop.com. Elias, thanks so much for joining me today. And Let's start with a couple of your takeaways that you sent over, first of which is that deterrence is out and regulation is in. Start with that. What's that mean to you? So for the last 10 years, we've had this really tortured debate in cybersecurity about how to deter cyber attacks. No one's really figured out what it means. No one can agree on how to do it. And the Biden administration has basically said, we're not going to try to address this anymore. The cybersecurity strategy is notable in in one way because the word deterrence doesn't even so much appear in the document. Instead, the document embraces, embraces this regulatory strategy where the administration is trying to impose minimum cybersecurity standards for uh, critical infrastructure industries. It's already begun doing this, and the strategy document is signaling that they're going to expand this effort for it to apply to many other industries. But what this means from a broader perspective is that the administration is embracing a far more aggressive regulatory approach to try to improve cybersecurity and deliver security dividends. This strategy is about improving the security ecosystem, and it's doing this by imposing, on the one hand, these minimum cybersecurity standards for critical infrastructure industries, and then advocating the imposition of so-called software uh, liability reform. This has been a third rail in cybersecurity for the last 20 years, at least. Flaws in code are ubiquitous. They'll always be there. They're used to carry out cyber attacks. But the companies that deliver flawed software, they aren't on the hook for the consequences of those flaws, right? So they don't necessarily have a great incentive to spend large amounts on security. What the White House wants to do basically is to shift the political economy of cybersecurity so that companies, if liability reform is pushed through, they'll be uh, exposed to potential penalties um, if flaws in their software are used as part of cyber attacks. Now, the road to instituting software liability reform is a long one. It's going to have to go through Congress. And whether that's actually going to happen anytime in the near term is deeply uncertain. The Republican Congress probably will not get on board with a new regulatory regime. And this concept of software liability reform is one that also faces some really tough technical hurdles where it's difficult to determine exactly what types of flaws software companies should be liable for and under what circumstances they should be liable for them. So the strategy basically says we're going to try to figure out what secure software development processes look like and 
if companies abide by them, then they won't be liable for the flaws in their software. But long story short, Biden administration wants to take a more aggressive regulatory approach on these two fronts. But the ways that they're going to implement this is still in many ways a ways off. Sure. And in speaking about being more aggressive in regulatory actions, it also sounds like Hunt Ford is one area that uh, the Biden administration wants to be a little bit more aggressive as well. And uh, explain what that means to the listeners and also why it's here to stay. Sure. So the Trump administration really took the shackles off U.S. Cyber Command and other components of the U.S. government to try to hunt down U.S. adversaries in cyberspace. They've had fewer restrictions on operations that they could carry out, and they could uh, carry out operations with greater independence. The Biden administration is basically continuing that. And we've seen this approach in the last couple of years of the administration uh, in Ukraine, for example, where the United States deployed U.S. Cyber Command uh, to carry out these so-called hunt forward missions where they tried to detect Russian operators on foreign systems. Uh, they've carried out a series of takedowns. Um, Hive is one example. Uh, the Emotet botnet is another one. And this type of aggressive strategy where the United States and its allies are trying to disrupt online actors, uh, malicious online actors, before they have a chance to carry out uh, malicious attacks on the United States is something that they're going to be continuing. And the strategy lays out uh, a foundation for this where they basically say that we're going to be bringing all uh, elements of national power to bear on the problem of disrupting American adversaries online. So the aggressive approach to disrupting U.S. adversaries online that the Trump administration uh, really pioneered, the Biden administration is now building on and is saying is here to stay. What they're saying is we're going to try to improve this. We're trying to integrate these efforts so that the various efforts in different parts of the U.S. government where this is happening, they're, they're going to be better coordinated with one another, going to be better integrated. But the bottom line is that this aggressive approach is here to stay. And then finally, you note in your story on CyberScoop that initial or international rather co- cooperation is front and center. So tell me more about that and why that's an important element about this new national cyber strategy. Right. So cybersecurity risks are political as much as they are technical. And here's what I mean by that. Malicious actors online, they're often based in countries like Russia, Iran, China. And so Disrupting the operations emanating from these countries is, on the one hand, a technical challenge, preventing them from accessing systems. On the other hand, it's also a political one, where these types of operations are elements of national power that these countries are bringing to bear on the international system. And the strategy recognizes this to say that the United States is going to be building international coalitions to try to counter these types of malicious operations online, for example, by attributing them quickly and working in various international fora to try to build consensus around what the administration describes as responsible behavior in cyberspace. So what are these foras? These are ongoing diplomatic initiatives, things like the Quad, um, the new trade initiative that the United States is pushing in um, in East Asia, um, IPEF, uh, the US-EU uh, Trade and Technology Council. These are bodies that the administration is saying that they're going to be using to try to promote uh, responsible behavior online and to set digital standards that are in line with um, 
U.S. bodies. And this type of international cooperation is also in line with broader efforts to try to uh, secure supply chains, for example. So the administration is saying we recognize that the problem of malicious behavior online is not limited to the United States, but is one that is international in scope and that the United States aims to bring its allies on board in a cooperative process to try to address some of these issues. So now that the strategy is finally out, uh, just briefly, what are you going to be watching for next? The implementation of all of these uh, various issues is a huge question mark, right? And um, the strategy has been quite welcomed by experts. Um, a lot of kind of positive noises being made today by by experts in the field. But um, whether actions uh, are able to back up the, the nice words in this document, um, I think remains to be seen. I think congressional action on software liability reform, for example, I think is very much an open question. And whether the administration is able to build a political coalition in Congress uh, to push that across the finish line, I think is very much an open question. Also, uh, what's the industry response going to be looking like for uh, software liability reform? Large software companies, they never want to be exposed to additional software liability, right? But at the same time, large companies also recognize that there need to be reforms put in place to try to improve security spending across the software ecosystem, right? And so liability reform might be one way of doing that. But again companies don't want to take on more legal liability. So walking that tightrope, I think, is going to be an interesting one and a challenge for the administration. We'll definitely keep an eye out on CyberScoop's coverage of that as that implementation unfolds. But for now, thank you so much for your time, Elias. Always great to chat, and uh, thanks for stopping by. Thanks for having me. You can learn more about the National Cybersecurity Strategy at fedscoop.com. Last week at the Zero Trust Summit, Department of Homeland Security's Donald Coulter and IBM's Terry Halverson discussed with my Scoop News Group colleague Wyatt Cash the Zero Trust adoption process across government. In this highlight from the summit, Coulter starts by explaining how his organization, DHS's Science and Technology Directorate, helps strengthen the nation's cybersecurity. One of the, the interesting areas that and opportunities that we have is because we're working with CISA and all the other components within DHS, we get a lot of insight into what are their current day-to-day uh, -day challenges they're facing. Uh, but as mentioned earlier, we at the Science and Technology Directorate, we're working with OSTP and other partners across the uh, federal government to think about what are those long-term challenges how do we make fundamental breakthroughs? Um, and so for from a zero trust perspective, one of the things we're very interested in is uh, focusing on how do we apply zero trust architectures to uh, industrial control systems and operational technologies, and then how do we integrate that kind of resilience with our, our traditional IT resilience. So that's where a lot of our um, forward-looking forward research is. Well, and I know those control factors are increasingly important, as we uh, can just see on the nightly news with our <laughs> utility stations and so forth. Yeah. Uh, uh, Terry, I'm interested to get your perspective as well as you kind of look at the, across the commercial landscape uh, and, of course, the government and DHS maybe in particular. What, what are you seeing um, that uh, is really helping push national cybersecurity forward? Thanks. Great question. And thank you for being here. I think, I think these conversations are the thing that's probably most pushing 
everybody forward. Um, that and a, and a recognition, and I would say this way, that we're, we're in a challenged cyber environment. Um, I would say we're in a, in, a, in a war environment in cyber today. So I think there's recognition. We've got to do a much better job protecting um, the data that we have. But I also think we're really focusing today that you just can't protect the data. You've got to protect it in ways that still let us use the data. Um, and I think that part of the conversation where we're actually talking about the risk assessment of how do you balance using the data against protecting the data has become a much better and more robust conversation today. And knowing that just the scale of the data we're looking at, that's no small challenge. Um, Donald, back to you. Uh, how would you say uh, DHS and your directorate in particular are looking ahead to uh, emerging technologies? Uh, quantum computing comes up quite often, and Terry, I'm interested in your thoughts on that as well. But as we look at encryption and the thresholds we're about to be facing yep. with much more powerful tools, what are you all looking at and planning for? So we're looking at uh, how do we apply artificial intelligence and machine learning to help us uh, more rapidly identify, respond, and respond to adversarial activity. Uh, we're also looking at how do we um, identify and, and mitigate AI-based attacks uh, and methodologies. One of the interesting areas that kind of converges across multiple areas we're concerned about, and actually just got some more news, right? People are using AI to crack some of the, the post-quantum, proposed post-quantum uh, mm -hmm. encryption <laughs> algorithms. So we have a lot of ways to go there, but we're working with uh, the partners uh, to figure out how do we protect our, our AI-based uh, uh, applications, how do we protect the data, how do we uh, reduce the, how do we increase our ability to process uh, data while it's still encrypted so that we reduce that risk uh, that comes along from decrypting that data as well. So that's one of the other main areas that we're focused on is AI as well as uh, shared resilience across multiple systems and organizations, uh, making sure we're using privacy enhancing technologies and, and adapting and leveraging those to enable us to share uh, critical information but protect proprietary information within organizations as well. Uh, and Terry, I think it's safe to say IBM has actually been on the leading edge around the quantum computing. Give us a sense for what you're seeing, how soon this is becoming a reality for agencies, and kind of what recommendations you're kind of having to have people think about uh, as quantum computing becomes um, part of our AI world. Yeah, for answer, I'll say this. I think to be successful in zero trust, I think uh, Donald's made a point that we want to minimize is that you gotta analyze a whole lot more data. I mean, part of the whole zero trust architecture requires us to look at data much faster and get to the results of that data quicker. So as we apply AI and quantum to this, that will help us get more of the data analyzed, but it also maybe gives us a new attack vector. And you talked about AI being used as an attack vector. So I think, we've got to be able to process the data faster, but also be thinking what is the next layer of protection that we're gonna to have to have to protect ourselves from you know, the new technology. Um, with respect to quantum, we're seeing you know, agencies like DOD, I would say the Intel community, begin to field some of what, what I would call quantum safe technology using some of the, the current breakthroughs in the quantum analysis to 
kind of quantum proof some of their data as best you can. And I think you'll see IBM will come out with some stuff here in the, in the spring and summer about the next level of what that will mean. Um, within quantum, just like everything else here though, I think the other key is partnership. Um, you and I have talked a little bit about that. We've got to have better partnership across the board between industry and government and between industry and industry. There's not a single company out here that can do all of this, not a single government agency that can do all of it. How do we start pulling those resources to apply this across the board? Well, I'm intrigued by that word quantum proofing. Uh, I think that will be probably part of our new coin of the realm. Uh, uh, you know, um, Donald, I'm curious, um, what are you doing at the directorate to kind of put a spotlight on, if not using quantum computing directly, mm -hmm. being able to help agencies guard against the brute force of quantum computing and, if you will, quantum proofing? Yeah, so we're doing a couple of things. One, uh, we, we lead a quantum uh, community of interest where we get a bunch of uh, folks from across government and, and industry and academia together to discuss some of the latest advances and opportunities, uh, some of the threats as well uh, in that space. And then we're also working uh, with folks to make sure as they do kind of the, the today's stages of cataloging all of their encryption and, and all the things they're using in those areas where they're going to start implementing quantum, we're also looking at how can we make it easier for them to transition to quantum uh, proofing uh, capabilities, looking at the crypto agility uh, capabilities that allow them to use multiple uh, encryption uh, types at the same time and so they can kind of gradually transition as uh, more and more systems become available. And then, uh, Terry, you raised an interesting thing about the role of AI here uh, in security. And I, I think we'd all acknowledge uh, in the past few months, AI has really moved dramatically into a mainstream view for all of us. Uh, we're trying it at our desktops, but clearly, uh, you know, the, the hackers of the world are obviously embracing this as well. What, what do you see uh, as AI being able to help uh, agencies and organizations really uh, move faster, if you will, towards securing their systems. So I think, and it's, it, it, I wish it's, we didn't call it artificial intelligence, so I'm going to call it augmented intelligence, because I think that's what we want to use it for today. Um, if you look at, let's just take cybersecurity people, we're never going to have enough. We're not going to grow them fast enough, and we'll never have enough cybersecurity analysts. So I think using technology, augmenting those cyber security analysts, we can automate and look at some of the first sets of skills that they have to do and actually replace that with technology. And I think we're gonna to have to focus on those type of uses of the technology to augment the workforce and to speed up the process. I mean, today, and I'll use the as an example, lots of data, um, that's not their problem. They're mostly overwhelmed with the amount of data. It's getting that data processed in a timeline that actually can affect mission. And I think that's true of almost all the agencies and of the private sector today. So I think it's gonna to have to be focused. How do we use this technology to augment our analysts and process the data in what I'll call mission speed, not normal speed? Terrific. Well, I wish we had a little bit more time. There's a lot to plumb here, but um, uh, Donald Coulter and Terry Halverson, thank you so much for joining us today. You can learn more about the DHS cybersecurity strategy at thedailyscooppodcast.com. IT Mod Talks is just a few weeks away. You'll learn more about the ongoing efforts in federal IT modernization, the continued move to modern cloud-based systems, and what's in store with emerging technologies like artificial intelligence. 
It's all happening March 15th at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City from 8.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. You can find more information and register now at fedscoop.com attend. The Department of Justice is moving along on its Information Technology Strategic Plan. The plan for fiscal years 2022 through 2024 lays out five goals. One of those goals is elevating cybersecurity and implementing zero-trust principles. Also at last week's Zero Trust Summit, DOJ Chief Information Officer Melinda Rogers opened the event and explained the cyber landscape her agency is following. So let's start with the problem statement. Ultimately, at least for me, it is about securing our information systems from increasingly sophisticated cyber attacks. The problem is very real. It does keep us cyber professionals awake at night. Me, yes, for sure, I could tell you that. Um, and it is about how to stave off a persistent threat in a complex and distributed environment while continuing to support our mission operations. How do we prevent unauthorized access while at the same time enabling and facilitating access for those verified and authenticated individuals, assure that the access is coming in from secure devices, and determine that the user has the right level of authorization to access the sought-after information. As you all know, just because a person is a member of an organization does not automatically entitle that person to have unfettered access to all information that has to be regulated. So how do you go about regulating that? The fact is, the de decentralized nature of cloud computing, remote work, which has been brought up to a new level uh, as a result of the pandemic and maximum telework, and mobile resources now require organizations to take a much tighter approach to cybersecurity. Zero trust architecture isn't a, isn't a singular solution, nor is it really anything new. Um, it is an integration of capabilities based on a set of guiding principles that's ultimately built on um, solid security practices, which I also like to affectionately refer to as basic cyber hygiene. It is about patching, configuring, and managing. Before we look ahead to DOJ's zero trust priorities, let's look at where we have been and where we are now. What does the landscape look like? The foundation on which the department's zero trust architecture is being built today has been fostered and developed for quite some time. At DOJ, we are not starting from zero on zero trust. And yes, I've been waiting to say that. <laughs> Over the past decade and more, the department has been systematically centralizing our cybersecurity program to achieve a holistic view of the department's security posture. Our building blocks include knowing what assets we have in our environment. We leverage our asset inventory system to automate the discovery of endpoints and bringing them under management. This was a big deal for us when we first took on this challenge of standardizing endpoint management across the entire enterprise and aggregating the readout for near real-time uh, visibility for our executives. That visibility was a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it was great that we were able to see things we weren't able to see before. On the other hand, we were seeing things that we didn't see before, which can be quite scary. But it's an opportunity for improvement. And it's the old adage, what gets, you know, what gets uh, seen gets done, what gets measured gets done. 
So it actually ultimately helped us in the end. The next building block we have is knowing the state of the assets or information resources we have in our environment. At DOJ, we leverage enterprise IT to provide the ground truth on our assets security posture. Instead of relying on manual data calls, verbal discussions across different component offices, we let our technology inform us in untainted bits and bytes, whether our systems are hardened and which, at which assets carry the highest or most number of vulnerabilities and which ones should be paid attention to by our cybersecurity professionals. And lastly, our building block of knowing who has authorization into our environment is another key element of our cybersecurity program. At DOJ, we have adopted the Homeland Security Presidential Directive 12 for our department-wide identity management, where there is strong identity proofing on the front end that's coupled with requiring the use of a personal identity verification credential on the back end for subsequent authentication use. All of that is to say, as DOJ shaped our zero trust strategy, we had as our starting point a solid cybersecurity foundation. We are by no means ripping and replacing. Instead, we are building upon what we already have and doing so by leveraging modern technology. Our focus from this point forward is as follows. First is unifying our identity management program. The reality is we are an organization that has almost 120,000 employees, about 40,000 contractors across 40 or so component offices. While we very much operate in a federated construct, it is also important we have a way to reasonably standardize and track the digital identities of every single person in our environment. Secondly, we are augmenting our endpoint asset inventory management to include detection and response automation to enable real-time forensics on suspected intrusions. The coalescing of these capabilities together forms the third pillar of our zero trust strategy, and that is to leverage a zero trust broker to enforce policies in real time, with each access request reevaluated or evaluated and reevaluated every single time on who is accessing the information, through what device, the security state of that device, and ultimately the level of authorization permitted by the person in combination with the device. Through our implementation efforts, the department has gained some critical insights that I would like to also share with you today. This will probably ring true with many of you already. The first is stakeholder engagement. It is near impossible to roll anything out, especially a big program like a zero trust program with many elements without getting component, um, your stakeholder buy-in. I say components because I have to get their buy-ins all the time. Um, our stakeholders in the zero trust scenario is not just the executives, the component IPT representatives, but ultimately comes down to the end users of our organization. We must get their buy-in early and frequently, and it takes truly a village. It takes the entire organization's participation to make the program ultimately successful. Two is to understand your business case. This goes back to what I said earlier. What is it the problem that you're trying to solve? Without clearly identifying your problem, you won't be able to come up with the right solution and you won't be able to clearly articulate to your stakeholders what is it that you're trying to accomplish and where that you need their involvement. A third piece is understanding your product. 
test the out testing the outcome is critical to the success of your deployment. Start with a pilot, a small one, kick the tires, go for that uh, quick win or fast fail so you can ultimately recover and redirect. As new capabilities are incorporated, we must continue to optimize the user experience. I was chit-chatting with Goldie earlier, I come from a sales and marketing background, so that is always in the back of my mind of ultimately whatever we do while we're protecting, the objective is to protect our information systems, we must do so in the context of optimizing the user's experience. And lastly, leveraging a shared responsibility model. We want to centralize the tools, streamline the security architecture, but empower the business units to manage their applications and users. Implement lean architecture with consistent configurations while allowing business units to manage their relationships with their application customers so that we optimize or help them optimize that business relationship. Now with regard to what I just described as the journey towards zero trust, it's not a simple task, it's not gonna be easy, but they are the core to what is needed as we continue to drive our implementation forward. As a provider of cybersecurity shared services to other agencies in the federal government, it is our responsibility to ensure that we are constantly evolving our capabilities to address the advanced persistent threats that target us. And of course, there's plenty of opportunities for new innovation to help us solve our problem statement. I leave with you how industry can help. Figure out where your product or service's sweet spot is. Don't try to be the silver bullet to solve the entire nugget of zero trust. Instead, show where you fit in this continuum of possibilities of architecture and ultimately how could you possibly solve your customer's business problems. In closing, as the Department of Justice Chief Information Officer, my focus has been in investing in solutions and frameworks to secure our information systems. A cybersecurity posture built around zero trust is the next step in that evolution, ensuring that we are implementing the most granular level of contextual-based security possible. Ultimately, it is about balancing mission support with cybersecurity requirements. We must be effective at both. It is not a trade-off. You can learn more about the DOJ cyber posture at fedscoop.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all podcast platforms. If you've already rated the podcast on your platform of choice, thanks so much. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people to find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. We'll talk to you again Tuesday afternoon. Until then, I'm your host, Billy Mitchell. Thanks so much for listening.